Hi, I'm Reverend Sean Guerin, and you have found yourself at Second Congregational Church's Saturday night service. And at this service, what's unique about it is we take an approach to the Bible that is very much spiritual. Like, that's the lens on how we view the stories of Scripture. We don't look at them literally. We don't look at them figuratively. We don't take the surface story to be exactly what the meaning is. And we don't pick and choose which parts of the Bible we're going to talk about. We take the whole story and we look underneath the, the message. And in a way, we are summoning the mystical, the spiritual part of these messages to see if there is something deeper than what's on the surface. And that's what I mean when I say the Gnostic lens, like we're going to look at the scripture through the Gnostic lens. Um, as a, a psychoanalytic student, I'm also very much saying let's look at them through the lens of psychoanalysis. Let's analyze the text to see was the author saying something deeper and is the story going somewhere because sometimes that's that's what scripture is it's an imagination it really is it's it's sometimes looking at the world through another another it, looking at the world in a different way and so you might read about a Red Sea being parted, people walking on water, uh, people being healed, the deaf being able to hear all of a sudden and the blind seeing. But if you look under that, there's a spiritual meaning. And that's what we're going to tap into today. So before I dive into our text, which will be from John chapter 8, I got to give some backstory, and that backstory comes with a confession. <laughs> so when I was in seventh or eighth grade, when I was a kid, and I'm not the only one who's ever done this, but I was unprepared for a test, and I looked over at my friend's uh, paper. I cheated. I tried to cheat on a test, and I don't even know if he was the right person to copy off of. Uh, and it was one of the, it was a math test, so you got to show your work. So I was really just in a kind of Hail Mary mode where I was hoping, okay, well, I don't know the answer. Maybe someone else does, and I'll look around and see if that answer is better than my answer. But I went through this, you know, when you're not focused on a subject, when you're not paying attention, you end up doodling in the margins. That's what I did. And when the teacher, when it's hard to connect with your teacher and they're just teaching and you're just not really in the mood to do math for whatever reasons, you fall behind. You miss formulas. You miss essential keys. And that, you know, that's the problem with math is if you miss one formula, you're lost. I ended up becoming a math tutor in college, not because I'm some math genius, but I actually spoke more to uh, the idea that maybe you had weren't paying attention, stuff was going on, 
in your personal life that you might have missed some of the formulas and essential equations. And more often than not, that was the problem, and people were able to do math. And I, maybe I was some kind of uh, psychomathematician, like some adding psychology to it. But the idea is I cheated because I was desperate uh, during a test, and that was a symptom of me not being really engaged, not being uh, focused on the subject. And when you're not focused, when you're distracted, when you're not connecting with your subject, your mind wanders. You're not engaged and you're off living in fantasies. You know, that's what I was doing in my doodles. You're living in fantasies rather than paying attention to what's right in front of you. And that's when you find yourself cheating. You're just trying to get by. You're just trying to pass. Maybe you'll study next time. But you're caught up in other affairs. And in John chapter 8, we hear a story about a woman who was caught cheating. Nothing else is said about her, but she was caught red-handed, acting unfaithfully to the husband she was married to. I can't relate to that kind of cheating, but I know why one cheats, and it's often a symptom, much like I described before. For personal reasons, and I didn't focus on my math. And I'm sure for personal reasons, this woman didn't focus on her marriage. Maybe she wasn't connecting with her husband. Maybe she started to lose focus of what was important. So she started looking around. And she found someone who she thought might give her the attention she needed. Unfortunately for her, she was caught. And back in the day, the court system was the temple's jurisdiction. So they brought her to the temple, all the people back then who caught her, brought her to the temple to call her out and punish her. 2,000 years ago, under Moses' law, that punishment was death by stoning. But as we will see, that, fortunately for her, would not be her fate. About 1,300 years before Jesus, around the 13th century BCE, Moses gave the Israelites the law. It says in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, when God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The law would lay out the way that the Israelites should live. It would be the judicial code for this people and their way of life. Given from Moses, and Moses got it from who? God's finger, the finger of God. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, 
we see this finger again. Do you remember when God brought the ten plagues over Egypt because Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites out of captivity? Well, one of those plagues had Moses' brother Aaron take his staff, and it says, take your staff, Aaron, and strike the dust of the earth so that it might become gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. Now, that's a special kind of torment. (laughs) Can you imagine how annoying that would be? Gnats everywhere? I can't even deal with a fly in my house. Neither can my cat. When When there's a fly in there, my cat and I are on the hunt. But the Bible records the story saying, all the dust of the earth turned into gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh's advisor said to him, this is the finger of God. In another story of the Bible found in the book of Daniel chapter 5, a Babylonian king, Belshazzar, was having a party and he decided to use they, they had taken over the temple and, and stolen the sacred vessels they used there of gold and sil- silver that were used in the sacred rituals in the Jewish temple. And they decided, let's use them to party with. <laughs> it says in the Bible that the king filled them with wine and gave toasts to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And it says that immediately after this blasphemous act, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the walls of the royal palace. And as you would would imagine, (laughs) that sounds like a scary movie, floating fingers suddenly appearing and writing on the wall scared everyone at that king's party. And because they didn't understand what had been written, they called Daniel in, God's faithful servant who was being held captive by the Babylonian king, made all kinds of promises if Daniel could interpret it, and Daniel did. He came and read it for them, and this is what it said. God has numbered the days of this kingdom and brought it to an end. That finger brought some bad news for this bad behavior. And later that night, Belshazzar was killed. Don't worry, we won't end the sermon here. Today's message is not, don't misuse the sacristy cups and plates or else God's finger will appear and wipe you out. Our passage of the day is from John chapter 8. I just had to give you some backstory. Because so far, we have looked at the finger of God in the Old Testament. And whenever it appears, it's bringing the law of God and it's bringing God's judgment when people don't follow and obey the law. For the ancient people, they had an idea about divine fingers. And the fingers of a deity represented something very dangerous, very powerful. It could bring about good, right? It brought the law. 
but at the same time, it could bring about judgment. And this is why I love the book of John. It starts so powerfully. And by that, I mean it starts so refreshingly. Sometimes we don't notice that the authors of the New Testament stories are playing with words and meanings as to provoke us to remember something of the past in order to contrast it with the present, the present situation. Do you know how the Gospel of John starts? It says, in the beginning. Remind you of another book? In Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it says, in the beginning. And last week I taught us that the writers of these books, of, these, of the Bible, of these spiritual books, were not just writing historical, moral, or ethical narratives. Rather, they were writing spiritual narratives. And spiritual narratives are made up of actual events, but, they don't, but, but they've been modified to speak something deeper to those who would later hear or read it. This was their way of passing down deep and mystical truths to people. So sometimes we'll read a story in the Bible and get too caught up in the actual event. That's what we've, if you listen to the past messages, we've, we've explored that. You'll read the Bible and get too caught up in the actual event. But we must learn to look deeper at certain parts of the story. For it's not by chance or coincidence that the author of the Gospel of John would have just wrote in the beginning. John wants to tell us a new story about God. You have heard the old story about the God who brings a law that seeks to establish his code of ethics and justice, a God who is intolerant of those who dare challenge him, a God who wants it his way or the highway, a God whose finger you don't ever want to see writing something down or pointed at you. This was the God we come to know in the Old Testament. That word testament means covenant, which is like a contract. And when Moses, when Moses and God met each other, when they had this conversation all those years ago, God said to Moses, you tell Israel, here's the deal, here's the law, follow it. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. It was a good deal for them at the time. They were captives, and the current gods at that time weren't really helping them out. So they took the deal. But it was an impossible deal. One that the Old Testament, it's so big because it tells lots of stories of how they never lived up to that law. They never lived up to their end of the bargain. And by the end of that old deal, the Old Testament, 
the Israelites who triumphantly escaped Pharaoh's hand by following God's finger as it pointed them through the Red Sea, who built a nation of kings, who built a temple to house this God of laws. They eventually lost their nation, lost their temple, lost their right to govern themselves, and found themselves worshiping a God whose laws and standards they can never live up to. And so when they caught someone cheating, they became finger pointers, using their fingers to point out the speck in everyone's eyes and missing the planks in their own. Like father, like son, I guess. Children behaving just like the God that they had followed for thousands of years. But John tells us about a new beginning, where a new son, a new type of person, a new and clear image of God would come. And this one, this person, the Bible says, here's what it says in John, that this one was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, without the word, not one thing came into being. What has come into being, what was now coming into being, what happened 2,000 years ago, after Moses gave the law, what was so amazing was what John describes saying, what came into existence 2,000 years ago after the law was life. Interesting, right? What came in after Genesis. Genesis tells one story of creation, but John writes a new story of creation, saying in the beginning, this moment in time later, was life. And the life was light to live by. This life and this light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. And so clouded in darkness under the spell of the law, those people caught a woman cheating and pointed their fingers at her and condemned her to die. Just as the law said, just as they've been taught, just like God taught them, just like Moses and and all their teachers had taught. That if you get caught cheating, if you get caught in the act of adultery, the law says you should die. But as we will see, that would not be her fate. I just read to you, the light shined. And darkness tried to put it out. Jesus came to bring us life. And the Bible says, not just half life, not just life in part. The Bible says Jesus came to bring us life and life to the full. Eugene Peterson's to the hilt. He came to show us that we don't need to follow a law that just points out how bad we are. 
Jesus came, actually, to point out how good we are. He told us that if we would stop judging everyone around us, if we could start working on ourselves, pointing out those things in us that need to change, then we would begin to see that we're not just creatures of the dust, destined for the dust, not just ashes to ashes. Jesus pointed out that there was a God who had made us and loved us like he loved his own son. And Jesus came down to show us the true God. God not in part, but the full God. The God people weren't just ready just yet all those days when Moses had presented what he thought God was like. The God that they were introduced to was a, not the full God. It was God in part. For they would not have been able to wrap their heads around the fullness of who God is. You could barely get Jesus. <laughs> See, Jesus came to the people who had only seen God through the law of the lens, through the lens of the law. The lens of judgment. That was the world they lived in. The lens of worship and rituals, traditions. But the true God, the true God was going to come to us themselves. And John says, that this moment of, in time, when he writes, in the beginning, this was the moment that the true God, for the first time, was revealing himself fully to the people of Israel. And the darkness tried to overcome it, but they could not. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He says that. He did come to complete it, to fulfill it. It was only a half-truth. It wasn't the full truth because it made people seem like they were servants and slaves towards God. What Jesus came to teach us was that we were God's children. And God's children are not treated with pointing fingers of judgment. That's how Pharaoh led. That's how they thought God might lead them. But Jesus came to teach us that children of God are not judged with fingers. Rather, they are taught in the loving arms of God's grace and mercy. John 1 tells us, The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It continues, No one has ever seen God. Interesting. No one has ever seen God. 
So Moses never saw God. He just saw a burning bush, just a finger. He interpreted the account the best he could, but he didn't see all of God. John says, it is God, the only Son, Jesus, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known, who has made God fully known. Not just a finger. While Jesus was alive, he made all the law lovers so upset because he didn't use his pointing finger to point out other people's mistakes. All along the way, Jesus taught grace and mercy to God's children, the whole human race, to the Jews, to men, to women, to Romans, Samaritans, the poor, the rich, clean and unclean. Regardless of your gender, Philip talked to the Ethiopian eunuch. This God had wide arms. But right behind him, every time Jesus preached grace and mercy, right behind him were those who still, like those in the Old Testament, who couldn't wrap their heads around this kind of teaching. They told Jesus that he was wrong, and some even accused him of being a demon. (laughs) But listen to, let's listen to this story. And you tell me who the one who's act, tell me who's acting on behalf of demons in this story and who's acting on behalf of God. Here is the story of the woman caught in adultery as we hear it in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. It says, Swarms of people came to him. Jesus sat and taught them. The religion scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They stood her in the plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. She was cheating, and we caught her. She made a mistake. And Moses says in the law, it says right there, we have to order We have to order a stoning to happen. We got to stone people who cheat like this, people who commit adultery. And they said to Jesus, what do you say about this, O teacher? And they were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating, something against the law of Moses, so they could bring charges against him. You see, this wasn't about the woman This was about someone changing how they believed God to be. I told you all before, these stories are not necessarily meant to just be a history lesson. They aren't just a biographical account of something Jesus did. Rather, they're trying to capture the deep spiritual shift that was taking place when Jesus came to earth. The story was changing. And this is 
a story that's trying to communicate that. And the story continues in John chapter 8. Jesus bent down when they asked him, what do you say about what should happen to this woman? It says, Jesus bent down. And listen, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept badgering him, but Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger. Who is Jesus again? What and who does he represent? He is God in the flesh, God incarnate. So here, God's finger, if it's connected to Jesus, God's finger is back. And now it is clear. Now it is present. Now that finger is not just a finger. It's connected to a whole body. It's not just a scary lone finger writing on tablets or calling down gnats on people or writing mysterious messages on palace walls. Was that ever God's? Do we know if that was God's finger? That's all that ever appeared, so I guess we'll never know. All we know from this story, told in the Gospel of John, is that the God in this story, Jesus, took his finger. They're using that word on purpose. Jesus took his finger and wrote in the dirt. In the past, God's finger would have been a scary thing to see. Bad news. The religious people kept badgering Jesus because they knew. They knew what he was teaching. And they wanted him to say it. They wanted to catch him red-handed. Because they knew that what he was teaching about God was something beyond what they had taught. Jesus was about to reveal the nature of who God really is. And this was going to be a line in the sand. Maybe that's what he drew with his finger in the dirt that day. They kept badgering him for an answer, and finally he lifted his finger. It says he straightened up and said, The sinless one among you. Go first. Throw the stone. He bent down again and wrote something else with his finger in the dirt. The clamoring crowd stood in silence and God sat in the dirt and drew with his finger that day. John finishes the story and tells us that after Jesus had responded to their dark judgment, hearing, it says this, hearing what he had said, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest, and the woman was left alone. 
After everyone was gone, the woman was left there by the crowds, by the religious people who wanted to have her condemned by the law. There was only one left, a God doodling in the dirt. The story has one last part to it. Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Said, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She replied, no one, master. Jesus said, God said, neither do I. Neither do I. Go on your way. From now on, no more cheating. (laughs) Don't make that mistake again. See, Jesus came to tell us that God really is like a parent who loves us. Not just a rule maker and judge who sits up on a cloud somewhere making judgments. Jesus came to show us what love looked like, what a loving God looked like. A loving God who is filled with grace and mercy. He taught that sins are just mistakes that we should learn from. You know, my kids make mistakes all the time. I made a mistake when I tried to cheat on that math test. And here I am. Here I am telling you all about grace and mercy because I found it. I've learned from it. And I believe it's two of the most beautiful things about God are God's grace and mercy. God is not looking to condemn us. God is rooting for us to learn and grow from our mistakes. Jesus came down and didn't use the law to scare us into submission. He taught grace and mercy as a way of drawing us close to the heart of God. That's what that finger does. It draws us to the heart of God. And when we practice grace and mercy ourselves, in our own lives, start with yourself. Sometimes we're a little hard on ourselves. Then start in your homes. Start with your neighbors. Practice grace and mercy with your friends, your family, your coworkers. You'll find yourself all of a sudden without having to follow any rule book or tablets you'll find yourself walking in the ways of Jesus. That easy. <laughs> and while it's hard to forgive people when they make mistakes, trust me, that's, that's not an easy thing. You will be strengthened by the love of God in whose light you will be holding in your hearts. May we walk in the light of Christ this week carrying the good news 
of grace and mercy, less finger pointing and more arms wide open. (laughs) When we walk in the light of Christ, we'll be carrying the good news of grace and mercy wherever we go. And if you lose your way, look at your finger. See where it's pointed. And look at the dirt. And be reminded of this story told in John chapter 8. Turn that finger to yourself and use it to flip through the pages of the Bible and learn to read the story under the stories and behold the man who reveals the fullness of who God really is. Amen.